Well, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant. And I was about to say, with me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. But Evan is not here. Evan has traveled to the Arctic. Boy, I thought the air conditioning in the office was sufficiently chilly that you didn't have to go that far, but he is, that's where he's going. We published our final issue of this season yesterday on, on Tuesday, uh, July 25th. And here it is Wednesday the 26th, and we are awaiting uh, some of us more breathlessly than others, the word from on high from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve will alert us to its plans for us and for the American enterprise. And I think it's awfully good of them to go to work today on a summer day and, and take time to uh, to guide us in this. Uh, no, I don't think that. <laughs> Sarcasm doesn't really work with no one to share it with. I can share it with Martin Hutchinson, our guest. I'll introduce Martin in one moment. Uh, before we get down to a business, I want to thank um, Harrison Waddill, who was at the control panel. Harrison ordinarily runs this business, and uh, today he's running the podcast. So well done, Harrison. Yeah. And uh, what else must I say? Oh, yes, we are having, um, we're having a conference. It is the 3rd of October. We'd have one once a year, and this is the uh, two, uh, 2023 event. And it is a, it's a rather special one because this commemorates and celebrates uh, 40 years of continuous publication for grants. 40 years. Now, I know long bonds that mature in fewer than 40 years is a round lot of years. And I think um, that many of you uh, ought to be there. In fact, I dare say that, uh, that everyone ought to be there, and some of you, I hope, will be. Um, the speakers include, uh, Harrison, am I right in saying this lineup is unprecedented in its, uh, uh, its all-around uh, luster and uh, accomplishment and knowledge and uh, wealth and uh, good looks? Is that correct? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. It includes uh, David Abrams, Harley Bassman, David Einhorn, Jeffrey Goodlack, Michael Hartnett, Partnett, uh, Paul Singer, and uh, a new recruit for this project, David Dredge, who uh, is the founder of um, Convexity Capital. He's in Singapore, and uh, David has the, uh, has the Bank of Japan's number. He's going to be here to tell us about uh, all manner of things having to do with uh, monetary affairs and their mismanagement. And speaking of the mismanagement of monetary affairs, we have with us today, ladies and gentlemen, an authority on that. And his name is Martin Hutchinson. And Martin is, um, is a formidable, formidable man. He is, uh, in the first place, he's a mathematics alumnus of uh, University of Cambridge. For all I know, a wrangler. I don't know that. We'll get into that, I suppose. And we're going to assume that until proven otherwise. He is an alumnus of the Harvard Business School, where he earned an MBA. And he began in uh, his career, I think, in finance. He'll clarify if not. And uh, worked for many years, I think a quarter of a century perhaps, in such outfits as Hill Samuel Citigroup um, and Skilda Securities. I think that's in the suite. We Americans don't know much about life outside the 50 states, but I think the Sweden is a, a country, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he was involved in um, Spanish uh, banking and, uh, and especially in uh, Croatia in the 1990s. Anyway, Martin uh, then got uh, the light, and the light is financial journalism. Now, from Daniel Defoe on down to Martin Hutchinson, the financial journalist has, has, been, uh, has been the place to be if you are uh, especially, uh, what's the word I'm searching for? Accomplished, I think, is the word I was looking for. And that certainly describes Martin. And Martin is here because, among other things, first of all, he's the author of something called True Blue Will Never Stain, The Bear's Lair. It is a 
Monday publication, Monday being the gloomiest day of the work week, says Martin, and it's a Monday essay that uh, one must read. And uh, Martin is also the author of Forging Modernity, among his other books. This is the new one, Why and How Britain Developed the Industrial Revolution. And Martin, if he's like some of us, is wondering when I will stop introducing him and let him say hi. So Martin, hello. Hello. Good afternoon. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, well, here for Martin, I think, is Poughkeepsie, New York, is it not, Martin? That's correct. So I'm just up the road from you. Yes. Well, um, I want to ask you about some of the following things. I want to ask you about uh, the thinking that led you into recounting uh, the history of the Industrial Revolution and much more in Forging Modernity, just out. I want to ask you about uh, the Bear's Lair and some of the ideas that I've read there, and in particular, the idea about how one ought to dress to promote a solvent and prosperous banking system. I would like to uh, talk about the heroes that you have encountered, including um, uh, uh, Lord Liverpool and, uh, um, and Henry IV of France and uh, Thomas Newcomen, the inventor of some uh, kinds of steam engines, and about some of the anti-heroes that you have uh, written about, including uh, Cardinal Richelieu and uh, John Law. John Law, I think, is a great uncle of Ben S. Bernanke, Ph.D. So, um, Martin, tell us, first of all, if you would please, how a man who was prospering in the city of London and outside it, and for all I know, was about ready to make the Forbes 400 list of the wealthiest people ever, how this individual chose to uh, go into the, uh, the penitential order of financial journalism. What got into you? Well, this was, what, 23 years ago, and I was an international banker, so we never made the kind of money that uh, the uh, Wall Street guys do with all their big deals. I used to specialize in emerging markets mm -hmm. and um, then eventually ended up firstly as U.S. Treasury Advisor to the Republic of Croatia. And then since the Minister of Finance liked me, I ended up running uh, corporate finance for Privedna Banka Zagreb. And it was all enormous fun. But uh, when that job came to an end, there were, didn't seem to be any more fun jobs in Eastern Europe. So I <laughs> had to sort of switched tracks rather quickly and ended up as financial journalism, not realizing that Daniel Defoe ended up in debtor's prison, which is not a good yeah. um, precedent. I see. Yes. Well, that does happen to some of us. Um, I dare say, Martin, there are fewer fun jobs in Eastern Europe today, even than when you left the place. Would that be a correct conjecture? I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. The, the 1990s were great fun there because you were you know, as Atchison wrote in his autobiography, you were present at the creation. So you were building capitalism from nothing. And there was at least some chance of doing it right. Yeah. Although inevitably, the um, aid agencies, particularly the European FAR program, came yeah. in and messed it all up. But for a few years there, we had some fun. Yes. Well, you certainly came um, uh, prepared, educationally speaking, for whatever lay ahead. Um, I um, Mathematics is not my uh, uh, strong suit by any means, so I'm always impressed by, uh, especially a Cambridge mathematician, I'm also impressed by a biographical note you dropped into the Bear's Lair, which is that, uh, uh, if I'm quoting you correctly, that even at the age of 17, you had in entertaining utterly um, inappropriate or... Um, outre or uh, absolute inadmissible ideas. And I would like you to tell the listeners to Kurt Yield, Martin, if you uh, can recall what some of these ideas were. What were the ideas that uh, would have, uh, say, 
prohibited you from a successful application to uh, Harvard College or other institution of higher learning in this country? Well, I remember at a dinner party on December the 31st, 1969, with the uh, brashness of youth, I announced that that decade would in the future be known as the silly 60s because it had been a complete disaster for uh, all levels of civilization. And while I slightly retract that now, um, I do, it was certainly a contrarian view at that time. Yeah. And, um, uh, and it was because the comfortable world of Britain's 1950s, which was nothing like as affluent as the American 1950s, seemed to me to have been eroded unnecessarily rapidly. Yes. So that was one deeply suspect opinion that you entertain. But um, as I read you, and I, I, I read you uh, closely and with great pleasure, Martin, but as I read you, you are seemingly uh, a born capitalist. You are a born Tory. Uh, you're uh, contempt. In the 18th century sense of that word, yeah. yes. No, yes, of course, the proper sense. Uh, con properly contemptuous as a Tory might be of um, the Whig Party. And um, so where did that come from? Um, because we, I, th I think it helps before we get into some of these writings to know a little bit about the author's uh, approach to life and his uh, set of ideas. So uh, where are these? Where are these? Uh, were you a, a born capitalist and a and a born 18th century Tory, or did these things come to you at a moment of revelation later in life? They came to me. I mean, I guess one develops one's ideas as a as a teenager. Um, the Britain in the 1960s and 1970s was a pretty sort of depressing environment in the sense that uh, the wall sorts of indicators of national decline. And one of them was the fact that the uh, Conservative Party wasn't doing anything that would remotely be called conservative or, mm. you know, it wasn't even conserving what it had, let alone trying to return to a previous better phase. And so I started looking back and I discovered that the one leader that nobody talked about uh, who'd led the Tory party for 15 years was Lord Liverpool. Yes. And I ended up um, in the 70s writing a book called Great Conservatives, which took me 25 years to get published and then not very successfully. And Liverpool was one of those. And I sort of defined conservatism as what people believed when Liverpool was prime minister, because that's actually the original definition. The word was first used in the January 1830 quarterly review, and that's what it meant. It meant the follower of um, that Tory government, which by that stage wasn't Lord Liverpool's. He'd recently died, but the Duke of Wellington was still carrying on the continuation of it. And in January 1830, they didn't know the government would fall in November 1830. And that was also... Um, sorry, sorry, Martin. So, so that was the definition of conservatives. And I thought if you use that as your definition, who were the great conservatives? And I wrote that book and then focused more closely on Lord Liverpool later on and decided to write a biography of Lord Liverpool when I took out writing biographies, which was really after I retired from my day job in the sense that I decided I'd didn't want to work for anybody else anymore. And so I'd try and write books. 
and uh, Lord Liver- the Lord Liverpool biography, Britain's Greatest Prime Minister, which is a stretch, but not that much of a stretch. Um, in other words, he's certainly among the top three or four. Yes. You know, um, I was um, struck by, in your new book, Forging Modernity, Why and How Britain Developed the Industrial Revolution, I was struck by the um, um, your sense of the, the timeline of progress and retrogression. And progress is certainly clear enough. It began after the uh, restoration of, uh, of the monarchy in the, with what Charles II, I suppose, would have been late in the 17th century. And it proceeds through the 18th. And then we, you tell us uh, in uh, great detail, much, uh, much of it uh, engrossing, uh, how the Industrial Revolution uh, for, was formed and how it proceeded and what, uh, uh, what supported it, what ideas supported it. And then we come to the turn of the, uh, the 19th century and you identify the year 1830 as the, as the height, the apotheosis of the Industrial Revolution. I would have guessed, uh, not knowing much about this, I would have guessed that the... Uh, uh, that the peak was was rather later in the 1800s. You make a very good case that it uh, occurred in 1830, and and you and you identify the moment um, by describing a fateful railway accident. And I would like you to tell our listeners about the uh, the year you chose, 1830, and why this particular railway accident uh, kind of crystallized uh, the peaking of the powers that. Uh, provided us with the great gift of the Industrial Revolution. Yes, well, the um, Tory government that Lord Liverpool had run from 1812 to 27, he had a stroke in February 1827 and was then out of politics thereafter. And they had a couple of short-lived middle-of-the-road governments under Canning and um, Goderich. And then the Duke of Wellington took over in January 1828 who was um, a fine conservative by all means, but not entirely suited to politics, shall we say, in the sense that um, he wasn't good at the sort of mental manoeuvring you need to do to figure out what's going to fly and what's not going to fly and how to sell it best. And um, he ran the government for... Um, nearly three years till November 1830. But during his term of office, both wings of the old Tory party split off. The Canningites, as they were then called after Canning, the liberal wing, split off in May 1828 um, because they uh, didn't agree with his fiscal policy and also disliked him personally as being a representative of the uh, more conservative Tories. And then he decided to pass Catholic emancipation, which was a political hot potato that had been around ever since the Union with Ireland in 1801. And he, the trouble was, was that the Whigs were generally in favour of Catholic emancipation and the Tories generally against And so by passing Catholic emancipation, which he did with his deputy Peel, he then peeled off the other wing of the Tory party, the the ultra-conservatives, the people who didn't want to give Catholics uh, not the vote. In fact, they already had the vote, at least in Ireland, but representation in Parliament and such. And so therefore, 
um, I don't know if you ever saw the Monty Python series, but there's a episode in that in which the Black Knight has his arms and legs chopped off, but keeps on fighting. And that was essentially Wellington's government in its last year, because it was a Tory party with both wings removed. And so it only had a tiny majority, even though Liverpool had done a very good job in 1826 and got a good majority elected, but splitting the party both ways at once uh, inevitably left it un unstable. And then George IV died, so you had to have a general election. And at the general election, they lost another few seats. And at that stage, they could only stay in if they got one or other of their uh, split bits back, if you see what I mean. Catholic, the people who hated Catholic emancipation were furious with Wellington personally for pushing it through, so they weren't going to come back quickly. So therefore, you had to do a deal with the um, the, the moderate liberals, uh, the leader of which was William Huskisson, who was a very um, well-known economic figure. He'd been president of the Board of Trade. Uh, he'd worked with Liverpool on the resumption of the gold standard at 1819. Yeah, strong gold done standard all the trade. man, no? Mm -hmm. Strong gold standard man was Huskisson. Strong gold standard man, yes, absolutely. And people, uh, you know, he, he's a major figure. At my school in the 1960s, they had a Huskisson society, and that's, what, 135 years after he died. So uh, that's how important he was, because uh, people admired him as a as a great economic thinker. And anyway, uh, he and Liverpool needed to do negotiation. The best place to do that was the opening of Britain's first major railway, the Liverpool and Manchester, because Huskisson was MP for Liverpool, and the Duke of Wellington as Prime Minister came up to the opening, which was much more of a schlep for him than it would be for us, because, of course, there were no railways, so it was basically a sort of three-day coach journey. And um, they all got on the train amidst much cheering. And then about halfway along, the train stopped to take on water. And various of the guests got off and not knowing about these railway things, they stood on the other of the two lines. Uh, you know, and Huskisson came up to have a chat with Duke of Wellington. They were supposed to be negotiating a return of Huskisson to the cabinet. And unfortunately, the Stevenson's rocket came by at the unprecedented speed of 30 miles an hour, so much faster than anybody was used to. And Huskisson tried to scramble into uh, the Duke of Wellington's carriage, but couldn't do it. He was 60 and overweight. And uh, Stevenson's rocket uh, took his legs off and he died about 10 hours later. It's all very sad. And that changed everything because it meant that Wellington couldn't get either the um, ultra-conservatives or the moderates back in his government. And so when they met Parliament in November, uh, the Whigs won the first major division and took power. And the Whigs were then in power and gerrymandered the electoral system by the 1832 Reform Act. And so, you know, Britain's system of government changed. And while there were following governments that called themselves conservative, they didn't follow the precepts of Lord Liverpool, partly because Peel, the next leader, um, who'd been Home Secretary under Liverpool, uh, had the opposite approach to economics. 
Liverpool had believed that you need high wages in order to force progress because high wages um, mean that it's um, very efficient to bring in labour-saving machinery and therefore even labour-saving machinery that's rather expensive and inefficient. <clears throat> You'll adopt it as soon as you can, whereas Peel believed in low wages and high profits. His father ran a sweatshop in the textile industry and made a million pounds by doing it. But um, Peel's approach then led to the repeal of the Corn Laws and later 18th century British policy, which meant that the forcing element that made Britain an industrial leader was taken away. So has, has the world been in decline since 1830? The rest of the world, no. I mean, um, Europe and then the rest of the world has been catching up and... Hmm eventually overtaking. But I think it's reasonable to say that Britain has been in decline since 1830. And um, uh, what is it about uh, the Industrial Revolution that we have lost? What ideas um, created it? And what uh, which of those ideas has now fallen into uh, uh, disrepute or at least uh, unfashion? What, 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 what are we looking at with respect to the intellectual grid that uh, provided the opportunities for all of this growth? And Some of the industrial revolution's ideas we've still got. I mean, one of the things that I think was necessary is the scientific revolution of the 17th century, and in particular, Bacon's inductive method of um, reaching new scientific conclusions. So you uh, form a hypothesis, figure out an experiment to test it, and then the results of the test make you modify the hypothesis. Right, so the scientific that's method right. Okay, that's, that's the bedrock. And, yes, um, that's the bedrock. And rights of property, is that how important is that? And the other one is rights of property, yes. Uh, but the scientific revolution we've still more or less got. But the rights of property, we don't have anything like the strength they had in the 18th century. Um, Liverpool used to get up in the House of Lords and give speeches explaining how property rights required this and they were extremely important and all the rest of it. You don't hear politicians doing that now. Um, and it, they've just gone out of public discourse. And what's happened, I mean, regulators and bureaucrats in general infringe on private property all the time. Yeah. And the result is that it's much more difficult to uh, gamble your life savings and everything else on some new um, new venture uh, with the hope that you'd be allowed to keep the results if it was profitable. And those early industrial revolution people were taking a huge risk and indeed not making all that much in the way of profits, but at least they got to keep what they made. Well, certainly the, um, uh, the powers of Silicon Valley seem to be... Um, uh... You know, th still thrusting despite the uh, decline and fall of Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, the, the idea of innovation certainly is not foreign to us, nor is the idea of enterprise, invention, ditto. So uh, are we, in fact, in a good place or a bad place with regard to the underlying capitalist dynamics in this country? Let's take America. Yes, no, it's easiest to look at the United States' largest free market economy and all that. I think we've um, come a fairly long way from it in that property rights are nothing like as respected now as they were. Um, I do think, and I think that a lot of the 
innovation in the tech area in particular, which has been fueled by the mass of private equity in the last 20 years, uh, has been pretty trivial or indeed damaging. I would suggest that social media was actually a damaging innovation in terms of lowering everybody's hedonic GDP, if you want to invent that statistic. Or taste. And I, I think the sort of ability of the quick buck is still there, but Industrial Revolution wasn't quick bucks. Thomas Newcomen spent tw- 10 years trying to figure out how to make a steam engine work before he got one to work, and he didn't die a rich man at all. You know, um, the scientific method, uh, induction, uh, performing a hypothesis, testing it, all these things describe... Um, science, real science, but there is a kind of flourishing pseudoscience, perhaps you'd agree with this or maybe not, that we call macroeconomics. Certainly monetary economics um, has plenty of, um, of mathematical symbols, the appendices to the Federal Reserve studies that pour out of the Eccles Building in Washington and other outposts of uh, monetarist thinking. These things are, uh, it looks to me, just uh, not knowing much about mathematics, it's somebody there um, uh, at least has uh, studied calculus, and yet these um, uh, these propositions by the monetary economists seem uh, unfalsifiable. They seem um, ungrounded in empiricism. They seem not actually to be working very well. Yet they do seem to be persistent. How is it that the ideas of science have corrupted political economy and have given us the um, uh, the central bank monsters—I oh, was about to say monsters—the central banks uh, that the world over have been so um, have been uh, that the central banks that have been suppressing interest rates and otherwise uh, cluttering up uh, free market with their ideas and policies. How, how, why has science lost its way and then moved into economics? Well, I think partly it's because it's politically attractive, of course, to expand the monetary money supply continually. And, um, I mean, you can read Lord Liverpool in the parliamentary debates around the resumption of gold. And indeed, while Britain had paper money from 1797 to 1819, and he was determined that uh, paper money should only be issued by the Bank of England as a private organisation it would decide to issue the number of notes that it wanted to issue. Hmm. And therefore, there was still a a market control over the money supply. And, you know, if government asked it to issue notes, it could say no, and indeed would if it wasn't in its interest or it thought it was endangering itself. And Liverpool made that point very very specifically in some time before they went back on the gold standard, but I was struck back. Yeah, well, um, I I wonder, Martin, if you would tend to agree with the proposition that in matters of monetary affairs, the history of the past 150 or so years has been one of retrogression. Let me quote from um, a book of which I'm very fond. It is um, Bray Hammond's Banks and Politics in America. And it's a history of uh, monetary policy and banking from about the Civil War to uh, the 1950s when uh, Hammond was writing. And here is the here's a quotation from uh, a Kentucky banking official, agrarian Kentucky, came up with this notion. It's a report um, on regulation, and um, here is what the Kentuckians said. 
couple hundred years ago, quote, bank paper is not capital, but credit. Bank paper being credit, purity of which depends upon its always being met upon demand, is from its nature designed to circulate and exchange the annual and marketable products of industry, and is therefore an unfit subject for long loans and permanent investments, period, close quote. So here is the doctrine of, uh, of short-dated credit. I guess uh, some people would stigmatize it as the real bills doctrine, but it is an expression of the idea uh, that there is a distinction to be drawn. One must distinguish between capital on the one hand and credit on the other. These distinctions have gone by the boards, and uh, we see uh, these banks, uh, some of which recently passed into the netherworld. We see them making very, very long-dated loans on inherently and necessarily illiquid assets, namely mortgages and real estate. And I am beginning to sound like a guy who is shouting at young people to stay out of his lawn, Martin. But I think <laughs> that you might have done some shouting along this, in the same but what I, I've done a lot of shouting over the last twenty years. <laughs> yes, um, but uh, uh, all this, all this was in service of a question. The question of which is escaping. But I guess the question is, ain't that right? And I, it tickles me that these Hicks from uh, Hicks uh, that the citizens of Kentucky would have expressed such an important idea um, with such economy of language and such precision. And you can read your eyes out with the emissions from the commercial banks, the oligopolistic commercial banks of the present day, and, and goodness knows from the central banks of the present day, and see nothing so cogent as this. So we have we have gone from a, a system of. Uh, of elegance and simplicity to one of complexity and dysfunction. And no one says nothing about it or about the paradox of progress moving backwards in this most essential business of lending and borrowing and money. It, it, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I, I, I mean, um, the, the, the lovely thing is that the... 18th century working classes appeared to have understood fairly well what was wrong with printing infinite quantities of money. Because when Britain went off the gold standard in February 9, 1797, which they had to do because they were running a huge budget deficit that year, Pitt was not a very good... Well, they were fighting a war with revolutionary France. And they were course, fighting a yes, war with yeah. France. And indeed, France invaded... The French invaded Wales. Uh, which is what finally... But nobody objected to that in England, standard. did they? Mm -hmm. Nobody objected to that in England. Here's no, no, Wales, no. take Wales it. Was, oh, no, Wales was no. part of the country. Yeah, I know, sent I know. To West But if, 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 the, <laughs> if the Russians invaded uh, New Jersey, who you know, like, yeah, so take it, please. Yeah, that, that, that's about the equivalent. Yeah. Now, the, anyway, the famous British victory at the Battle of Fishguard <laughs> um, removed the French from yeah. Wales. They all surrendered. Um, it was a sort of bunch of local yokels right. and a few militia. Okay. <laughs> okay. But that went nowhere. But but the, the, the point I was making was that when we went off the gold standard in 1797 and went to the Bank of England printing notes, um, everybody said, well, you know, in London, people are going to understand because they're sophisticated. They're going to understand that the government is credit worthy. But how are ordinary people out in the country going to understand? And it was obvious that they probably wouldn't. And so Charles Jenkinson, Liverpool's father, who was president of the Board of Trade, put together a scheme 
of printing penny and tuppenny pieces in copper, which Britain had because they had a large copper mine in Anglesey. Um, we didn't have to import it. And um, those pieces would be so heavy that they would actually be worth um, their stated value. So there were one pence and two pence, and their copper value was just about the same as their nominal value. And so, and the working classes who, of course, one pence and two pence was the normal thing they used. They didn't throw sovereigns around much. Um, would therefore be able to pay each other and receive their pay and so on with these new coins and feel happy they were getting full value because the copper was actually worth it. If they melted it down, they'd have an ingot that was worth something. And effectively, therefore, Charles Jenkinson put working class Britain onto the copper standard for a couple of years in the late 1790s, after which confidence was recovered. But it's a very interesting experiment. It's very interesting that Charles Jenkinson, at any rate, believed that working class Britain would see something that was um, bu was bullion backed, even if it was copper bullion, not um, gold or silver, and uh, therefore be happy that the money was still worth something. Yes. Um, so uh, before leaving the uh, Industrial Revolution, um, I want to... Uh, uh, call the attention of our listeners and to remind myself of one of the existence of one of the few geniuses in our particular line of work, Martin, and that is Daniel Defoe, uh, who uh, wrote, of course, uh, uh, the immortal um, Robinson Crusoe, but he also he wrote a lot of uh, uh, financial themed, financially themed pamphlets, and uh, he wrote something, as you quote here in your history, a tour through the whole island of Great Britain. And this was uh, 1724 or 25. And what I thought was so interesting is that uh, uh, that Defoe, a curious guy whose intelligence uh, is expressed in part in his insatiable curiosity, um, he he uh, he he wrote down the the, the details of of uh, everyday life and work, and those details brought to life that's as you put it here that specialization mechanization and a deeply rooted knowledge of processes and techniques was already highly developed before the Industrial Revolution proper really got a running start. So people knew what they were doing. They were competent. They had, they had skills. And those skills were awaiting, I guess, energy, organization, and, uh, and technology. But uh, tell us about the, uh, the leap from Defoe's observations to uh, the, uh, the decades that followed that uh, that finally peaked, as you say, in this apotheosis of 1830. This is a, a rather open-ended question, but if you could give us the three-paragraph answer to this hundred years, how did the people from Defoe's tour, the observation, how did all of this uh, yield this great benefaction that uh, we call the Industrial Revolution? How did this come to be? Well, Defoe's tour already makes it clear that even in 1724, Britain was different to anywhere else on the continent. That difference wasn't universal historic. In 1600, Britain wasn't different. Um, I mean, it was different in certain respects, better in some, worse than others. But there was no reason, if you looked around the, the Europe in 1600, as I did in a preliminary chapter, 
uh, Britain wasn't where you would think an industrial revolution would spring mm. up. Your best bet would have been France under Henry IV, who actually wanted to make the peasants richer, which isn't a normal view of French government, but for some reason he had it. And um, there are a number of cases of British entrepreneurs being thwarted in England because Queen Elizabeth, like Catherine the Great of Russia two centuries later, believed that machinery was a bad thing because it put people out of work. Biden thinks um, that and so respect, they went yeah. off to France yeah. and got um, patents there and set up businesses there. And of course, that all came to an end when Henry IV was assassinated in 1610 and was fairly shortly afterwards succeed, well, it was succeeded immediately by Louis XIII, who was a boy. But in terms of running the place, Cardinal Richelieu, who came in about 1618, believed that um, the peasants should be kept firmly subjected and the church should be exempted from much of the taxes. And that's what gave you the very unequal and um, unproductive society of 18th century France, mm. that and a financial crash in 1720. But in Britain, um, they had the same sort of half-baked approach to um, innovation in the early 18th century. In other words, it tended you tended to innovate when you were given a royal grant. But uh, the interregnum, to do it credit, uh, broke that up and pushed Britain a long way towards the Netherlands, which was already having a commercial society. And then when the restoration came back, um, you combined the entrepreneurship and scientific co um, go-aheadness with the um, openness, social openness of the interregnum. And so you got something that was distinctively different from the continent because everywhere on the continent was still an old-fashioned absolute monarchy, whereas Britain, even from 1660, wasn't. And the one very important thing that changed was landholding. Um, instead of being subject to feudal dues and held subject to your feudal lord, um, it became freehold, so you could buy it and sell it and indeed mortgage it. And that once you got the real, real estate, of course, was the, the big asset. And once you got that market freed up by the Ten Years Abolition Act of 1660, the Earl of Clarendon deserves a shout out. Um, then you got an asset that you could sell or mortgage to um, invest industrially. The first steam engine was built by Thomas Newcomen. And that was fine. He got his first successful one going in 1712. He then set up a marketing company across Britain. He was working under a guy called Savory's Patent for various reasons of English patent law I won't go into. Um, and they got a, a proto merchant bank called the Hollow Sword Blade Company to put out about £20,000 to form a marketing company for Newcomen steam engines. And that was successful enough that by 1733, when the patent ran out, a couple of years after Newcomen died, they had 110 Newcomen steam engines in use across the country, which may not sound a huge number, but France only had 48 in 1816, 85 years later. Yeah. 
Uh, Martin, let me ask you this, if I may, um, um, not having given you a chance to finish my other long-winded question. I want to ask you about the, uh, the Bear's Lair in a piece that you wrote. Uh, this is about, in fact, it's quite recent. The United States, the headline reads, is no longer a role model. And um, in this, you contend that uh, uh, hyperregulation in the current administration and what you call Bernankeism, which I like, <laughs> yes, uh, on account of these two things, that U.S. productivity growth has now turned fairly negative, quote, as the Industrial Revolution goes into reverse. Now, from the author of a history of the Industrial Revolution. This is quite an indictment. Could you uh, defend this uh, alarming proposition? The Industrial Revolution is going into reverse. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that um, the U.S. ability to invent new things and increase productivity has been thwarted. The, um, If you like, the factors reducing productivity are now more, as of this year, it could change, are now more powerful than the factors increasing it. Now, you know, one of the factors reducing it is monetary policy. I'm quite convinced that zero interest rates uh, led to all sorts of unproductive investment. And in fact, if you look at the productivity figures for the 2010s, they're pretty grim and get progressively grimmer except in those last years under Trump when they were bringing interest rates back up to 2%. And uh, I think it's because you've got a lot of unproductive investment with zero interest rates. You also get a lot of unproductive investment with government doing the investing. The British high-speed train HS2 is a classic example of that. It's $100 billion, or uh, £100 billion, pounds, I forgive me, and will allow you to travel 15 minutes more quickly from London to Manchester, but it won't um, stop in between and it won't make any other journeys significantly quicker. So, I mean, it's just a complete waste of money. Uh, and that's what happened when the government direct, directs investment. Um, and I think the US is therefore no longer the beacon of hope, if you like, for people trying to pull up their societies and improve their living standards. And um, it, it, it's no longer the great role model. Where is the great role model? I mean, I think countries that are choosing China are in the process of discovering that's not a good role model either. Uh, Singapore, but Singapore's tiny. Uh, there isn't another good one. Yeah. Well, these things do work in cycles, and I have uh, hope, if not uh, ironclad expectation, that uh, somehow... Uh, the idea of enterprise and the idea of money and the old Kentuckians' notion of the distinction between capital and bank credit, these sacred, secularly sacred ideas yet might make a comeback. In the meantime, I commend to everyone on this broadcast of Forging Modernity uh, by Martin Hutchinson. Um, I think it's book number four, including the one you uh, wrote jointly with Mr. Dowd on, on risk management, which I also own and enjoyed dipping into. It's a good, uh, very fine primer on, on uh, what's right and what's wrong with risk management and finance. So, uh, Martin, thank you. Thanks for doing all that, uh, the stuff you do, not excluding uh, Bear's Lair every Monday, faithfully. Never miss a Monday. Excellent. Well, I'm very glad you read me, and I'm uh, delighted to be on on the podcast and um, it's most enjoyable. Thank you. Fabulous. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening.
and uh, Grant's interest rate observer is going to uh, lie down on a hammock for a few weeks, but we'll be back. Um, when, is, when are you supposed to be coming back here? Um, oh, we start, yeah, September 1st. And uh, But the office will be manned by people doing uh, uh, fruitful and uh, productive things, will it not, in the meantime? Yeah, okay, good. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, Jim Grant, on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Music.